Hello and welcome to Wellbeings. Today's episode, as always, is brought to you by Jackson White, Attorneys at Law. Today I have a wonderful episode. Also, as always, Reed Gunnell from Heritage Lane joins me to talk about Heritage Lane and all the wonderful services he's offering there in the realm of long-term care and behavioral health. I learned a heck of a lot, and I'm sure you will as well. So enjoy, folks. Reed Gunnell. Reed Gunnell, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. It's nice to be here with you. It's nice to have you here. So as you know, this podcast tends to center around long-term care and wellness. So why don't you introduce yourself by telling us how you kind of fit into this space of long-term care? My fit in long-term care is unique and it's different in that we specialize in behavioral health. However, there's in inside that spectrum of behavioral health, there is a particular type of person that we are really good at helping. And we have found our way into that niche and specialized in it and have been able to find success in the outcomes of those residents that we care for. You say a particular type of person with behavioral health issues or needs. What is that particular type of person? This is a person that can't function on their own independently. There's all kinds of diagnoses in the DSM. What are we now? DSM-5? Five? five. Okay. Yep. Which is really different than dsm four. How that's technical stuff, but there's particular diagnoses like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, mood disorders, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation. Those are all the diagnoses that that we are very successful with. We're not successful with borderline personality disorders, and those types of diagnoses require a more specialized type of treatment like DBT. What is DBT? Um, dialectable behavioral therapy. At what point does an anxiety disorder warrant inpatient treatment like this? Well, it's a tough question for me to answer because in the 11 years that we've been operating, we've never sent anyone inpatient. There's, we've never called crisis and we've never sent someone to an inpatient unit. So we've never seen at Heritage Lane those level of escalating behaviors where someone is becoming so violent or they're manic beyond our ability in-house to stabilize that mania where it's so out of hand that they become dangerous to themselves or dangerous, dangerous to others, where we would have to call a crisis team or we would have to you know, call the police and they would take that person to an inpatient unit. That would be where that would occur, but that's just not, we don't see those things at Heritage Lane. It never gets to that level. Maybe I'm using the wrong nomenclature here. My understanding, or at least the way that I'm using the term, would be inpatient would be heritage lane. Is that the wrong? Am I using the wrong verbiage there? Yeah, yeah, I think so. You could see heritage lane more as like an outpatient treatment center. Okay. Where let's say that, you know, you had a family member or a friend that was being treated for anxiety and they would go see a psychiatrist or... Uh, LCSW therapist or a PsyD or a PhD psychologist. So maybe they would go and get cognitive therapy treatment 
to help them with coping skills and they would go see a psychiatrist for medication management, but they would all be outpatient. That's really what Heritage Lane is doing. So inpatient would be these real acute situations that are destabilization techniques that are very short-term stays. A good example of that could be something like, you know, hospital-based inpatient psychiatric centers. Mountain Vista has one, St. Luke's has one. So these, those would be inpatient units. I see. I see. And so put succinctly then, how would you classify Heritage Lane? I mean, it, skilled nursing facility, assisted living community, what do you call it? Heritage Lane is licensed as an assisted living center with DHS. And in 2014, when the rules changed in assisted living that would allow, that would differentiate the service levels of assisted living from behavioral care to behavioral services. Those are two similar but different scopes of practice that DHS is allowing assisted living centers to operate with. And we sought out early on an interest to get our license approved for behavioral health services. Okay. So that's every that's what we've been doing. And that gives us a little bit more autonomy and a little more authority to take on kind of a higher scope and a deeper scope of mental health treatment inside of the assisted living licensing. Gotcha. How common is that? Not common. Not at all. Huh? No, it's not common. I think right now, the last time I looked, which was only a week or two ago, that there's about 18, 18 facilities in the state of Arizona that have a behavioral health service amended Okay. License. And amongst all providers, there's 2,400 licensees. Oh, wow. So out of, two, out of 200, four, out of 2,400 licensees, you're only dealing with 18 of us that, that have this amendment. Wow. And, and of those 18, are they primarily servi- servicing that population? Or is it more of like, we do this on the side on top of our typical elderly population? Yeah, I like that question. I'm going to brag. please and you do have the mic i just think heritage lane is super unique because we understand it i think heritage lane is at the top of this of this level Mm -hmm. because we were so good at 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 knowing how to treat mental health conditions in long-term care and this comes with years and years of experience both between my wife, who is my business partner, and she's also the psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner in the building, and my experience in operations and my experience in behavioral health, this together, we just, we fully understand how to treat the whole person mm-hmm. and the impact that can have on an individual. I think a lot of these other buildings, by the way, I'm just, I'm, and I am joking a little bit because I think they work very hard and I think that they deserve credit taking care of mental health diagnosed individuals is very, very challenging. Yeah, it's super hard, And it's super hard to do in assisted living. I can um, imagine. Really hard because you, the staff don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They're not, these aren't trained individuals to respond to coping strategies. And the way I describe it is that when, and when someone is admitted that has a mental health diagnosis that might be an underlying condition, so their symptoms their symptoms that they're experiencing because they might be bi- have bipolar disorder, when those symptoms occur, 
the staff in these facilities they don't really know what to do and this just does this is not only in in assisted living this is a this is prominent in skilled nursing mm. the staff really don't know what to do they really don't know how to respond what's unfortunate for the people that suffer with these illnesses is that they don't really get the right treatment mm. so what's happening inside these buildings is the staff they develop their own coping skills. They develop their own coping strategies. So if somebody throws a plate in the dining room mm -hmm. and breaks it against a wall, let's use that example. Okay. The staff don't know what to do. They don't know what tone, what voice tones to take. They don't know how far to stand, how far away to stand. They don't know whether to make eye contact or not. They don't know how to make sure that the area is safe and that's a priority. Yeah. And so they're moving people out of the way. They don't know, they don't know the steps to take. Yeah. No. So so the result is because there's no formal training and because there's no experience, what you have is that shift to shift, you have the staff modifying the coping strategies on the fly mm -hmm. based on their own personal experience. Sure. I can see that happening. And because of that, the resident who should be getting a very specialized focused treatment mm -hmm. and the protocols should match the diagnosis and their needs, mm -hmm. they're not getting that. They're getting these very sort of ad hoc mm -hmm. responses from employees based on personal experience. And they're trying to cope with the situation, but what they're really doing is damage. Yeah. They don't know it and it's not intentional and it's not, it's not malicious. Right. It's just, uh, it's issues of lack of training. It's knowledge gaps. Yeah. I, yeah, I can see that. And it's really unfortunate because, you know, I'm just talking here. I'm no expert on the subject matter, but it seems that a big part of treating mental health is stabilization, you know, helping them understand and develop, helping them develop a routine and giving them some type of certainty as to what's going to happen next. And if it's changing from shift to shift, how is one who's already kind of fragile in this regard expected to stabilize it? It must be challenging. So to that point, what does Heritage Lane offer to your employees for training so that they can have some kind of continuity from shift to shift? Mandatory four hours a month or face termination. And this is not just caregivers and care staff. This is everybody. This is housekeepers. This is dietary. This is dishwashers. These are cooks. All everyone in administration, laundry workers, mandatory four hours of training per month. That's wonderful. Everybody is going to interact with the residents at one point or another. So there's nobody who doesn't need training, right? The behaviors change. You don't just take an admission and assume that this gentleman is schizophrenic or schizoaffective disorder. And you don't, you can't just assume that that when you introduce that individual into a milieu, that individual is going to respond the same every day to, ev to every circumstance. Sure. And so as a result of that, if you don't do this training and you don't modify treatment protocols when necessary, it's not effective. Mm -hmm. The staff are not going to effectively treat the person and the whole person and the whole milieu. Our core focus at Heritage Lane is milieu therapy. This means the whole environment gets manipulated in such a way where it can function together stably. And doing that across 50 plus people is highly complex. 
Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. So 18 out of 240 offer some... 2,400. Okay, I was off yeah. by a touch. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah I had a thought. Hey, what's another zero? <laughs> I wrote it down. I made the note. I wrote 18 slash 2400. I'm like, that can't be right. And I crossed off a zero. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> wow. So 18 out of 2400. So that's a, a minute percentage of the communities out there that offer these types of services. Mental health is becoming more and more, at least maybe not prevalent, but at least more spoken about, more discussed. It's the spotlight is on it. I wonder if as mental health issues become more normalized, that I wonder if there will be new competitors entering the market. Do people see this as a space that has a lot of potential for growth or are people just saying, you know what, that's a tough one and I'm gonna stick to something different. I agree with you. I think it's multifaceted. Well, first I want to say I'm proud of the state I live in. I'm really proud of access. Yeah. And I'm really proud that to say that as I've served on the Access Advisory Council over the years, and sometimes I'm not as good as I should be at attending those meetings, but I have been lately. And the individuals that are kind of managing that council right now and the people that have worked in it over the years really do care about the mental health side. You know, as an attorney supporting the Alltech system, we've had offline conversations about the challenges of the PASAR reviews and scoring models and stuff. And I think that's still an issue. And those are challenges that are difficult for us to overcome mm-hmm. on, on our side of the business and on yours. I just want to give credit where credit is due that the state of Arizona is really, in my opinion, advanced. I agree at what we're doing for those who are diagnosed with SMI and AMI, and that I'm very optimistic that it will get better. I'm very optimistic that it will get better. And I do also think that the challenges of entering the market Mm -hmm. are significant. And it's whether it's reimbursement rates that are an issue or finding the right type of employees that can do that job because it's much harder, mm-hmm. more challenging. It's easier to take things home. Yeah. Uh, it's emotional. It causes emotional duress and stress. Oh, I'm sure. And it's hard to cope with it in and out of work. Mm-hmm. And there are significant challenges for those entering this, uh, entering the mental health space I, in long-term care. Yeah. I can only imagine. To your point, you know, some people are really good at, at kind of compartmentalizing work and they can leave work at work and then go on with their lives and then then there are others who are kind of always on so to speak you know they're so passionate about their job that they're always working whether they like it or not how do you navigate this is work something that you do to support your lifestyle or is work a passion that has kind of become a part of your lifestyle today now which I see it now differently. I made plenty of mistakes trying to do it the wrong way and having the wrong view. Today, I think that anyone out there who's listening to this. There's like four people out there at least. Four. Four. Hey, (laughs) if we can just reach one of them today. (laughs) Or who will be out there to listen to it later. There we go. Because you are popular. I, this would be my advice. Pick a job 
pick a career, devote your life, your professional life to something that you would do for free. That's great advice. And I want to answer your question with that. That's that this is a job that I would do for free. And that's why I love it so much because yeah. I just the monetary components of it are not my concern. You know, I it's I would do it every day for free. And because of that, you don't have to do it for free. You know, if you love what you do, you end up doing it well and the money follows. I have kids that are of the age where they're trying to determine what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. And, you know, they're just entering college and yeah, they have time to make up their mind, but it feels like, uh oh, I have to declare a major. I have to pick all this. I have to decide the rest of my life right now. And I just tell them, just, you don't do what you love and you know the money will follow and, and so i have a daughter that's going to do sound engineering and i don't know i don't know if she'll be rich or not but i think she'll be happy you know and, and that's the important thing as far as i'm concerned yeah. my dad jumped ship when he was in his mid-40s wow and never had a college degree and he said i'm gonna go back to college in his mid-40s and everyone said, you are crazy. You own real estate, you own tire stores, you're set. And he said, I'm just not happy. And so that's always in the back of my mind as well as, and one of the things he told me, he said, hey, whatever you do, you know, when I was younger, he said, whatever you choose to do in your life, don't do it for money. It's a great advice. Do it, do it because you have a love for it and a passion for it. And whatever that is, the money comes. But if you wake up every day and you're motivated to do something that you love, the money stuff comes later. Yeah. You know, maybe you are a school teacher for 25 years, but in the end, you write a book that's a bestseller. You know, you never know. You never know what you can accomplish. But I think the important takeaway here is whatever you do, you'd be willing to do it for free. That is a great takeaway. I think if you're motivated by money, you'll never have enough. As a, you know, it's enough as a mirage on the desert, you know. So you're talking about your dad and some of the advice that he gave you and, and all this. So what in your developmental stages led you to where you're at in your career today? What led you to adopting this particular career? Well, I have a degree in computer science and I was a software engineer for Pulte Homes for a lot of years, sitting in a cubicle writing code. Mm, no, thanks. It's lonely. <laughs> you know it's like you're sitting there and all you're doing is staring at a screen with a whole bunch of garbly gook jargon on it <laughs> and you know you got to turn around and ask someone to go to the bathroom you know mm -hmm. or hey can i take my lunch break and i just got really kind of lonely and i was doing okay mm -hmm. I had a, I'm, you know I, I i know how to code i know mm -hmm. how to build networks and servers and wi-fi systems and all that stuff that stuff is comes natural to me. It's fun. It's like mm. a hobby. Mm. But I just didn't feel I'm a people person. You know, I really like being around people and I like I like learning about people. So I'm also entrepreneurial minded. I love business. Mm -hmm. I love building. I love disrupting. Mm. I like disruption. Mm -hmm. Healthy disruption. Yeah. There's a lot of unhealthy disruption. Yeah. I love healthy disruption. And um, Clayton Christensen, that's kind of his model, innovative disruption some is that uh, the i don't know i'm yeah. not sure yeah well yeah but but i just found that 
you know, I wanted to get out of the corporate structure. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and so I started my own business that, in fact, attorneys were my customers. Yeah? yeah. What was it? Yeah. I was mining trustee sales okay. um, out of the public record. Okay. And I made I created a really awesome database that would allow attorneys and bankruptcy attorneys and real estate investors to turn this raw data into very useful information using using business rules and code logic and data sets and stuff like that. Boring stuff. Well, way above my pay grade, boring or not. (laughs) (laughs) So it got me out there. You know, I learned how to market my business and start my own company. And that's what I, and I was doing okay. You know, it wasn't a huge moneymaker, but I was having fun and and learning a lot and using my skills. And I had a couple of employees working for me. And then Flex MLS came along and said, hey, we're going to start offering foreclosure data in our system. And I went out of business in six months. <laughs> Just like that. Yeah, somebody, I was gone. Somebody disrupted your industry. That's right. <laughs> yep. We don't like that disruption. We like to be the, the disruptors, not the yeah, disruptees. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> so I found myself in a really kind of low place, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And I have a really good friend that, that works in the nursing home industry in California. Well, out here, well, in California. He's been out here in, in California. And he said, hey, why don't you come out and check out my job? I'm a nursing home administrator. And I said, oh, okay, sure. Because I was interviewing at all kinds of places looking to go back into writing code. So I go, I've never been in a nursing home before at this point. Wow. I've never even walked in a door. I had no idea what this was like. And man, <laughs> I was blown away, mostly by the smell. Yeah, yeah. Yep. You know, like I was not ready for that. <laughs> and I walked in there and I walked right out the front door. I went in and went out. That was it. No, I just walked around the parking lot a little bit. And I was like, why did I come here? Because he was over, he was in Palm Desert, you know, Cali. Mm-hmm. So I was just walking around the parking lot and I'm thinking, man, why did I do this? I was like, well, I'm here, you know, I'll just go in and. So I held my breath a couple times, you know, to try to just like, Yeah. after a while you don't smell it, but yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> so I just, I fell in love with his job. I really did. I spent two days with him and he's an awesome guy. I love this guy, but I fell in love with his job and I don't need to say his name because if he ever listens to this, he'll know who he is. And uh, then, you know, I went through the interview process of the company that he worked for. And as many young guys are, like I was in my mid thirties, I was attracted to it in a very significant way. Wow. So that's how I got into, you know, the nursing home side. And then I got my nursing home administrator's license. Gotcha. So that was kind of the pivotal moment then shadowing your friend out there. The real love came in my preceptorship. Is that well, explain to us what a preceptorship is? That that's just my a AIT program. Yeah, AIT administrator program. and training program and who my preceptor was and you know his he'll know who he is too. <laughs> you know obviously if he's listening but you know Doug had a good impact on me, very positive impact. It's just a guy that that I often you know kind of try to go back to in my mind of someone who doesn't take it too seriously but does it for the right reasons and mm-hmm. has his heart's in the right place with it. And if it's not, nobody would know, <laughs> you know, but I know him and I believe that it is. And, and I just had a really good positive experience with him that, that drew me into it, even though I was, you know, getting paid nothing to 
train, but <laughs> I was just thankful to get something. I mean, getting paid to get trained is, I thought that was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, absolutely. so I felt really fortunate. Just, I didn't care how much it was. I just wanted to learn it. Yeah. You've touched on this, but I'll ask the question directly so, so that you can give maybe a succinct answer, but what sets Heritage Lane apart from, from, I would say comp competition, but it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of competition. But what sets you apart from the other assisted living communities, skilled nursing facilities in the Valley? Well, I wouldn't see skilled nursing facilities as my competition or even amongst this group of licensees. But it, to answer the question for assisted living providers who would say, yeah, we take behaviors, uh -huh. I would, which is a lot, which is almost all of them, quite mm -hmm. frankly they're operating under behavioral care, not under behavioral health services. And the difference is primarily, in my opinion, as, my, as I interpret rule, is that I can, in essence, operate somewhat of an outpatient system mm. inside the community. So I can hire LCSWs, counselors, I can hire therapists, I can hire LPCs, or I can hire PsyDs or PhD level psychologists or psychiatric nurse practitioners or psychiatrists, whether MD or DO, if I wanted to, mm. like I could really, I could have these people on staff treating. That's the main difference. And I think what makes Heritage Lane different amongst all of them is we actually do it. <laughs> As opposed to advertising that you do it. Yeah. I mean, we're, we take it very seriously. The SMI world requires experience, knowledge, and execution mm -hmm. on, on evidence-based practice. Mm -hmm. And what we bring to the table is the experience, the knowledge, and the execution on the evidence-based treatment protocols and practices. And that takes high level of skill and training mm -hmm. and professional degree sure. to be able to do. And I think for a lot of providers out there, it's just simply cost prohibitive. I understand. So you clearly have your specialty, your focus, as do other communities and other facilities out there. Are the challenges that you face in your setting, are they much different than those faced by other administrators? Yes and no. If someone has, you know, a diagnosis of and I'll, I'll say again, schizophrenia, that individual, that life, that person is, is going to experience their symptoms differently in different places. And so in that sense, not so much. Mm. Both of us are going to have similar challenges. I think what's helpful is that we know how to treat it. We know how to de-escalate it. We know how to prevent an acute situation from occurring, which is very costly to the healthcare systems. These would be psychiatric hospitalizations, mm. admissions. We know how to prevent these things. We know how to manage it. Gotcha. We know how not to overutilize the system. I see. And so my our experiences are going to be different because mm -hmm. we know what we're doing and we're confident in it mm -hmm. versus someone who doesn't really they're just trying to get through the situation the best that they can, but they I really see. don't know, hey, if I do this, it's going to have this effect. Gotcha. They're just trying to sort of cope with it and deal with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I know that healthcare is not cheap. Who is the primary payer source for your residents, typically? I mean, I know it's got to vary from person to person. But. Primarily is Altex. 
Yeah. Yeah, but that's because I love it. <laughs> I think that I'll go back to do something for free. Uh-huh. You know, there are there are people within access and there are people within the Altex managed care or managed care system that I am very fond of. I highly respect. I love them. I see them as partners, true partners. I feel responsible to report to them. I feel a duty and an obligation to perform for them. And that that level of respect mm. that I feel towards those who are working in the Altex system keeps me in it. It's hard. Mm-hmm. The oversight's challenging, the lots of audits and and behavioral health has its own sets of audits and HCBS now has audits and it's more cha- case managers are in there and you know they these are these people also have a tendency to do their to, they're doing their job but that adds work. Mm-hmm. It would be far easier for sure to just manage private pay. I choose all techs because of my love for it and my love for the people that are in it. Wow. What a great answer. What, and what an uncommon answer, too. Most administrators with whom I have spoken uh, would prefer private pay every day of the week. You know, they would, if they could get away with it, they would, uh, you know, avoid all techs. But that's just not the world we live in because most people don't have, you know, the five to $15,000 a month it costs for long-term care. Just to maybe clarify something for listeners that might not know what this is, Altex, the four of them. Altex is a program that pays for long-term care. It's, it falls under Arizona's Medicaid program access. And generally speaking, there there's medical requirements and financial requirements. And with the elderly population, they're looking at their ability to perform activities of daily living. So if they require nursing facility level care, then they qualify at least medically for all techs. And I'm just guessing here, this is more your world than mine, this medical eligibility, but with the elderly population, it's, you know, can you get from your bed to your chair and from your chair to the toilet? And can you feed yourself and these types of things? With the mental health diagnoses, it might not be as abundantly clear that these, it's not as clear cut, the medical assessment. Talk to me a little bit about the medical eligibility to even qualify for Altex so that then Altex can become the payer source. I think that's a two-part question because I really believe the provider carries a significant amount of responsibility in showing and representing the need, the true need of that individual. Mm-hmm. In long-term care, it's not uncommon to see five to 10 comorbidities. Sure. And if you don't have a provider that knows how to document mm-hmm. on those 10 comorbidities, mm-hmm and presents the individual as a one-person assist or a min-assist, let's say, Mm -hmm. minimum assist. If they present that individual as a minimum assist because they don't know how to really document, Mm -hmm. that's this creates all kinds of challenges in the approval process for Altex. And I'm sure on your side, it's very frustrating to to get these documents and you're like, hey, do you guys not know how to do your job? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as a matter of course, I have (laughs) social workers call all of the care homes that my clients are at and make sure that their care plans are as 
comprehensive as possible because I want mm -hmm. everything updated, current, reflected. I want to demonstrate as well as possible the need for coverage for my clients. And that's really cool that you do that. I think even I would appreciate more of that that type of education in kind of the, the modeling of a proper care plan in these situations. It is true that that is a big piece. And although you or I is not the decision maker, it's, it, there's going to be a, you know, a case review assignment mm -hmm. that someone's going to actually come out and do this assessment. Yeah. It's a visual hands-on assessment. It's in person. So at least it used to be. Yeah. Nowadays it's telephonic. Yeah. Post pandemic. Yeah, that's probably why it's harder to get approvals now, huh? <laughs> yeah, it could well be. I think that's a managed process. I don't think that an individual, and this for me, this comes down to caring about the person. I don't believe that an individual deserves a provider that isn't taking full credit for what they truly need and showing that in documentation so that if that person is having a good day mm -hmm. and that review assessment happens to go better than expected, mm -hmm. that's just one day. That's just a snapshot, you yeah. know? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. And so it's really incumbent on the provider yeah. to substantiate something different mm -hmm. and show it as evidence yeah. When you factor in the notion that most people, when it comes to their health, have a very hard time taking an objective view of their health. They're either looking at it through rose-colored glasses, oh, I'm fine, I'm just, I'm doing okay. Or the flip side is, oh, I'm awful. It's very rare that somebody can objectively pinpoint the challenges that they have. And so I always tell my clients, look, just kind of cut and paste, you know, all the hard moments of every day and just kind of weave this tapestry of one bad day and then throw it over the assessor's head and say, this is my worst day. And this is, these are all the things that happen because shoot, if I can get out of bed five out of seven days, but on two days I can't, you know, I want to answer the question as if it's one of those two days because I don't want to be stuck in bed for two days. You know, two days is a long time, you know? So answer every question as if it's the worst day. It's kind of a backwards world, all text, right? Real world, you want to be healthy, wealthy. All text world, you want to be sick and poor. So it's mm -hmm. like highlight the heart, mm -hmm. the challenges, you know? The behavioral health piece, because you asked about this too, and the role that it plays in that approval process, I think is... There's some weakness there. There's some areas to to be better. There's some area for improvement. And maybe a scenario that I would give is the truth behind these mental health diagnosis. And at Heritage Lane, everyone is seriously mental, mentally ill. So the truth behind the fact that when someone is highly symptomatic of their mental illness in a moment time. Let's call it major depressive disorder and the individual is experiencing a very escalated bout of isolation. <clears throat> and they have a lot of motivation for some reason just to isolate. So they wanna stay in their room for long periods of time. They wanna be in the darkness and they don't come out for meals. And what I'm trying to say is that when someone is experiencing symptoms of mental illness, what they're doing is they're also exacerbating the comorbidity symptoms. Right. Yeah. 
And the challenge that, that we have as providers, and this is why I say that this takes really skilled people to do this, but the challenge in the approval process, since that's what we're talking about, is if you have someone who's experiencing major depression and ice, and they're in that for, for whatever reason, maybe they're reminded of a death in their family, something that triggers that, mm-hmm. where they're not really coming out to meals and they're just laying in their bed and they're just they're feeling sad and they're feeling lonely and they're having suicidal thoughts and they're not socializing, they're going to get weak. Their fall risk goes up. Their needs on the medical side go up for that week. And that's where, that's where I think there needs to be some improvement, both on the provider side and on the approval process, is recognizing that these mental health conditions and the symptoms it produces exacerbates the medical comorbidities. And it creates higher usage and higher utilization of those ADLs. Mm. And unless the provider is doing a good job at delineating and representing that, mm. Mm-hmm. The approval system mm-hmm. does not, will never see that. You're the better one to answer. I'd be curious for you to respond to this is, do you see this ever happening? Do you ever see that someone really truly does have medical needs, but they're just infrequent and they're just not getting represented? I do. And I have, we, we have put measures in place to to guard against that. And so I have the conversation multiple times. What I just told you about cutting and pasting all the hard moments, tell all my clients that. And then when the assessor is assigned, I have a social worker call the family and say, okay, look, they're gonna ask questions. And if dad says that he's fine, you need to interject and you need to say, okay, he says he's fine, but this is the reality. Dad says ABC, but the truth is XYZ. The assessors are familiar with this. It's not like it's an uncommon thing to say you're better than you are. That's kind of human nature. But unless they hear otherwise, that's all they have, right? And so we do a crash course with the families, with the individual, him or herself. And then the last thing we do is we talk to the facility, we review the care plan with them, make sure that the care plan reflects all the care that they need on their worst days. And in between those tactics, we're relatively successful. I mean, with the financial component, I know the rules. I can help my clients kind of navigate those rules. But short of, you know, bumping on the head with a hammer, there's not a whole lot I can do with the medical piece other than education. And so it's just telling them again and again, you know, every time I call, I'll say, how's dad doing? Oh, he's doing pretty good. And I'll say, wrong answer. Not in this conversation. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we want to focus on the negatives, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, absolutely. You know, health ebbs and flows, good days, bad days. We all have them. And when all text eligibility is on the line, it's really important to really hone in on the bad days, not the good days. Absolutely. Let's see here. You've talked a lot about what you're, what you do at Heritage Line, but you haven't brought up the fact that you're an owner. How long have you acted in this capacity? Coming up on 12 years. 12 years. Yeah. How uh, do the challenges that you face as an owner differ from those that you faced as an administrator? As an owner, you just have to be good at everything. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know was that bragging? Uh, is that what that was? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
We have it on record. Yeah, Reed Gunnell is. is good at everything. Yeah, <laughs> you heard it. I think probably the easiest way to explain this is I just don't have anyone to call. You know, when mm-hmm. when when something goes wrong, there's no one for me to call. The buck I, stops here, huh? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't have you know a corporate office that I can call and say, you know, hey, I got this employee that you know is like walking around in the kitchen with a shirt off. What do I do? You know, I just, I don't have that. I don't have those resources. I don't, there's so many different stresses and mm. they're compounding. You know, as an administrator, I never had to manage cash flow. Right. I didn't even really know what that meant. Now I do. <laughs> you know, now, now and, you're the guy getting the calls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, you just have to be good at all the components of what a business requires to operate. And, it's very consuming. It's all, it's a lifestyle. It's all consuming. Mm -hmm. And as a, I, I happen to be an operator in a sea of corporations full of resources Mm -hmm. and financial influence and power. And I just don't have that. I don't have that. I don't have access to that. You know, I'm not saying that I'm comparing myself and feeling, you know, like I'm less than them. I don't think that. I just think what it's done is it's made me so much better at what I do. I think it's made me a better person. I think it's made me a better manager. Uh, I think I I fight all my own unemployment claims. Hmm. I don't use help for that. I do everything myself. I do all my own write-ups and I rarely lose. You know, and that just takes skill, experience, practice. But as an administrator, I when I got an unemployment claim, first of all, they don't, they never came to me. Mm-hmm. And second of all, I certainly wouldn't know how to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't know what the effect of it was on my business. Right. I wouldn't know that it affects my seater rate. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know that it, my experience rating matters. I don't know. I wouldn't know what range is normal. Right. But I can confidently today say that my rate is 0.5%. So I think just as an owner, it, you just kind of learn everything that you need to know to to make that thing go and make it function. Yeah. And that's, as an administrator working for a company, there's 40% of your job you just don't know you're not, you're just not doing it. Someone else's. Right. You know, right. and that's just the reality. <clears throat> yeah. That's a good point. And so going into ownership, clearly you, you I mean, you don't know what you don't know. So I'm sure that there are things that were easier and some things that were harder, but <clears throat> you're a bright guy you knew is going to be a big undertaking. As you decided to pursue ownership, why this model? Why Heritage Lane? Why behavioral health and not, you know, what everybody else is doing out there? I guess everybody finds their way somehow and some of it's a little luck and some of it's intentional. And I think I was fortunate enough in my long-term care career when it started to be around the behavioral demographic. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of all I know and it's kind of all I knew. And that's part of it. So just sticking with what I knew. But I would say also that when I had the opportunity to buy the building that I'm in and own it, I knew when I walked in there as an employee that the way it was functioning was not going to work. And I'm glad you came out and saw it because now you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's 
you aren't going to have a private pay demographic that's looking in for senior housing, walk in there and say, wow, this place is amazing. Narrow hallways, shared bathrooms, 150 square foot rooms. It's not for that. It doesn't work for that. And especially with the level of construction that's happening in the market today, mm-hmm. we're way off the spectrum to compete on that level. So I knew early on that that selling Heritage Lane as a geriatric standard living mm-hmm. was not going to work. And, mm-hmm. and behavioral health was a perfect fit because this type of resident completely annihilates their interpersonal relationships with family (laughs) and friends. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that these individuals are often, unfortunately, kicked out of multiple placements. Mm. They're passed around the system. There's no stability for them. Their families are distraught, Mm -hmm. frustrated. No, they don't know where to go. And aesthetics yeah. really don't matter. Outcomes matter. Programming matters. And that's why Heritage Lane is full all the time. That's why I get 30 referrals a month. And the majority of those are out of state. Well, why is that? Because there's nowhere like it. That's phenomenal. And when we visit with these people in New York and Florida and Kentucky and Ohio and Illinois and Michigan, they're, they're, they're so desperate. They're so desperate to find what they see on our website and in what's in those videos. Stable, stability. Mm-hmm. They're desperate for stability. And they don't have lives. They can't have a life because they're fielding 30 phone calls a day from their brother asking for snacks <laughs> and he doesn't need any wow. and they don't know how to handle it and their relationships are destroyed or they're spending all their money or you name it. Yeah. You talked about programming and outcomes, how that matters. I will comment and say that while aesthetics are, you know, must take backseat to those two facets. Your aesthetics are also on point. You know, there were there no funky smells, nice and clean. Yeah, right? thank so you. you have all it that matters to me. For, yeah, all that going for you as well. What I thought was really cool, you guys do over. You have your own monetary system where you you're teach you're teaching these folks life skills. You have your own currency, and you're paying them with currency that they can buy things within your community with. I thought that was a really cool, really cool idea. Was that your idea? Thank you. No, that's Dr. Peterson. That's her creation. That's her invention. That's her product. It's very much tied in with her treatment plans, which are, I would consider to be somewhat, they're extremely thorough and intensive. And they're all different. She spends an enormous amount of time creating them, writing them, editing them, changing them. And the system that you just described, we call work therapy. Uh And the residents work at the facility. And these are jobs that are very simple, like rolling silverware or walking around the property and picking up trash or 
wiping tables after meals or dusting the handrails. So the residents, they have to apply for these jobs. There's an application process Mm -hmm. and there's interviews and they, for us to make sure that it's safe, you know, Mm -hmm. we have nursing that reviews the application to make sure that they would be safe to do the job. We have, we review it with the discipline of that job. So if it's wiping tables, I want to make sure that this person can interact safely and in a healthy way with my housekeeping supervisor. And that's something she's also willing to take on because she's that housekeeping supervisor gets that four hours of training every month. Yeah, They know what to do and they're responsible for making sure that those tables get cleaned. Well, it's not an employee relationship. doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. So the housekeeping supervisor has to treat that differently. This is a therapeutic process. It right. requires a different train of thought mm-hmm. and action. Mm-hmm. So the supervisor has to be thoroughly trained on hand- handling both. <clears throat> yeah. And that work therapy program is very popular amongst the residents. And we mainly because personal needs allowances amounts are small, uh-huh. you know, and if that resident smokes, all that money's going to cartons of cigarettes. <laughs> and the last thing they want to buy is shampoo or soap or, yeah. you know, toothpaste or a toothbrush or something. So we, we allow them to earn this money in the work therapy program to purchase the products that they would otherwise not be purchasing, which is also playing into their behaviors. It's why they are at Heritage Lane because they don't shower, because they don't get up and brush their teeth and they don't have a routine. And hygiene is a significant portion of that routine. And so the work therapy program is very much tied into the therapeutic process Mm. of what that routine means. Mm -hmm. And, but without causing damage to the PNA because it would be, it's like when there's, you know, that money's critical for them. Yeah. And and we want them to be able to spend that on things that they want. That's the idea. You know, they're frustrated if they have to buy laundry soap with their PNA. Yeah. It's just, you can't afford it. Yeah. Nobody likes buying things that they need. mm -hmm. I want to buy stuff I want. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And for us, it it creates a happier resident. I can imagine. The last time that I, well, probably the only time that I engaged in a system like that was in sixth grade. My sixth grade teacher, I believe, if I remember correctly, her name was Mrs. Abaroa. And we had Abaroa Bucks. And you know, the, the idea, of course, yeah. was to teach us, you know, little sixth graders how money works and you know, finances and the economics. And I suppose it must have had an impact because I still remember it. But you, the idea was so we could take those skills and go on and use them in life. Being a long-term care facility are, is the hope to give these people skills that they can then take <clears throat> out into the world when they leave or do they leave? What's the length of stay? What's the duration? I think it can vary depending on the goals of the resident, depending on the goals of the responsible party, depending on the diagnoses and how severe they experience symptoms. It's just different for everybody. We, we have had residents leave Heritage Lane and move out on their own, yes. And successfully. That makes us very proud. I can imagine. I'm very proud of those individuals. And do they, do we they oddly still, sometimes, some of them, yeah. 
Yeah, uh-huh. That's cool. But as you know, SMI can take its toll on people. It can cause significant deterioration of health. And depending on where someone is with all of that, mm-hmm. they just living out on their own just is never going to be, is never really a probable option. Mm. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. And, but what I am happy to say is that we are long-term care. It's the length of stay is long-term. Yeah. And our residents don't want to leave. They're really happy. That is a beautiful thing. <clears throat> yeah. It feels like a, they're a af- home. They're afraid in a healthy way mm-hmm. of losing something really good. What's the dynamic when you're walking through the halls and you see your residents? How do they interact with you? Me personally? Yeah. <clears throat> As though you're the owner slash operator slash everything, really. And that's not very common from my understanding. But being the owner and operator and the residents, I'm sure, know this. What's the dynamic like there? I am super, super passionate about dignity and respect. It is the first right that residents get when they become classified as vulnerable adults legally. Their first right is dignity and respect. And I'm very passionate about it in a sense that I have no problem standing up in front of my residents with my employees around, which I have done over the years many times, and told them my employees do not have my protection. They don't. But you do as a resident. You have my protection. You, I am, it is my moral and ethical obligation to advocate on your behalf. Mm. And my employees are not protected here. They are getting paid to do a job, Mm. which I do highly respect Mm -hmm. and appreciate and adore all of them for the job that they do. But when it comes down to dignity and respect, there is, if they violate that, there is no protection for them. None, zero. And I have shown over the years to my residents, by example, Mm -hmm. that I mean that. And so my relationship with my residents is they know I'm a safe place. They know that, that I'm on their side. They know that I really do love them. What a gratifying job. Oh, it's awesome. Wow. I love it. I do it for free. I I envy you. That that sounds very gratifying. I get a small taste of that with my clients, but it's you know so so short lived. I you know, I know my clients for a couple of months, and then they're out of my life. You know, for the most mm-hmm. part, and I don't get that time to develop those types of relationships like you do with your residents. That's really cool. Being, I mean, certainly it's your business. You may you're calling the shots. One way to do it would be the owner and operator. Another way to do it would be the owner and have someone else operate it. Any regrets to to wearing both of those hats? I don't have any regrets. I think I've made mistakes as an operator and as an owner. But I want to keep things in perspective because I think it's important for me to be okay with where I'm at with this. Like, because I need to have perspective. If I had 50 buildings, mm-hmm. 
and I had 50 administrators and I wanted to, you know, do specialty care and I wanted to create a property and make it a special use property and practice behavioral health, mm-hmm. I would have 50 administrators to pick from and say, hey, that gal right there, that woman is so good. She's the one I want. She's the right one to do this. I don't have that. And finding the right person to do what I do and have the knowledge that I have and to be able to execute on it is like hitting a massive grand slam. Yeah. And I can put an ad out there all day long, but then I get one shot with someone I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not necessarily proud of my results, but I'm also, like I said, I want to keep it in perspective. I've tried it twice and failed. I have not been able to find the person that can do this with me and for me. It's um, a hard thing to do. It's hard finding somebody that can do a job the way that you want it done. Training is hard. And then you get them trained and they become valuable because they have all the skills and then retention becomes hard. And then you're back at looking and training and, you know, it's, and then it's this cycle, it's a challenge. So I, I can see that in some ways being the owner and the operator would simplify things. Of course, it take more time. I can see pros and cons both sides. You know, long-term, yes, I would love to to find someone that has the same level of passion and see it the same way and just have an appetite to to do this and do what we do there. And I want that for the company. I, I want that for, you really can't scale or you really can't have growth opportunity unless you have that. So, right. you know, that, of course, that's something that I want. I just, I'm very careful about making sure that I'm patient on the tail of that conversation, maybe this is the wrong question to ask next. What do you think the secret is to building a good team? Oh, there's probably several, but never take credit for anything. Never. In terms of anything, uh, positive outcomes, anything Not, I've never, I don't ever do that in front of people. I don't in front of my employees, especially even if I know I'm, the major com- contributor to a successful outcome with something. I will never, like, I will never go and just take public credit for it and in- either directly or indirectly. I will assign credit to someone. What about failures, mess ups? Yeah, I'll t- I, yeah. Take credit for yeah, those. Yeah, I've done it on this call already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have a problem with that. And I think that's, you know, that's, Good leaders are okay with vulnerability. Yeah. That is not something I was good at early on in my career. It's It takes a lot of practice. And you know, some people will define it as ego or whatever, you know. I mean, I think everyone out there that's working in long-term care is, if they're in it, they're getting their ass kicked. And they're doing it because they have some identifying purpose to it. Mm-hmm. And it's... There's some that get paid great money and some that don't. But I think the underlying attachment they have to it is that it serves a purpose for them in their life. And I think the best leaders, to be really honest with you, are able to do that with employees in the trenches. And that's 
also what I think Heritage Lane is good at is looking at your employees and figuring out how you can create good experiences for them in the workplace that build the loyalty to the job they're doing. So they want to do it well and they want to do it better. It's not about their wage. Mm. It's not about the 401k. It's not about the bonus. Those are all great things, but that is not what intrinsically drives people to excel. If my employees at Heritage Lane are having positive experiences and they receive affirmation from me and from their supervisors about their job and about their work and they experience positive things that create memories, it's those memories yeah. that build that loyalty to the company and to the job. And the best leaders know how to do that. Yeah, They know how to create those memories and they understand the value of it. Mm-hmm. Because a, their employees will stay forever if they do it. That's a great point. Yeah, it almost gives the employees a sense of ownership of their role within the company, you know, and just like being the owner, you want the company to succeed. Being the owner of that role, you can take pride of ownership of that role and be a huge contributor. And I think that's probably what sets, uh, you know, the great administrators apart from the rest, I would guess. Arizona has a huge staffing crisis, particularly within the healthcare industry. Are you guys facing turnover issues at Heritage Lane? Now, no. No? No. During the pandemic, of course, Mm -hmm. naturally, I think that as some of your other guests have stated and alluded to we all have experienced casualty mm-hmm. of the workforce mm-hmm. and, and been affected by that in a negative way it's made me better it's made me better i learned very quickly i don't have it all figured out <laughs> you know yeah and that's you know the minute you think you have it all figured out that's when you know nothing you know yep he knows Everything knows nothing, really, is what it comes down to. And even as much as I adore my employees, which I do, like Mm -hmm. I really love them. And they know this, like a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And I talk about it with them and we cry together. We laugh together. We cry together. And it's powerful. It is. And they, I mean, I, I do believe that they really do know that I love them, but they also know that I love my residents. And that's my, that's what I care about. And that's what they care about. And we're all on the same page. And I think that's really what helps the turnover. Naturally, with a change in administration, you're going to experience up to 30% turnover. That's typical. Mm-hmm. That's to be expected. And so when I took back over operations, that did occur. But that's probably mostly because I'm not putting up with the BS. Mm-hmm. And that's also... What, take, what it takes to be a really good administrator is you just can't get into a place where you're allowing people to violate willfully and with intent violate policies of the company because you're beholden to them as an administrator because you're afraid that if they're gone, who's going to do that job? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
an administrator, any business owner, this isn't healthcare, this isn't, you know, this could be making smoothies. <laughs> but it's the same as an administrator or an owner. Any operator, you cannot ever become beholden to your staff. Mm-hmm. I've learned that myself and in my career, yeah. And you have to be willing to pull the triggers that are some of the hardest triggers to pull. But what I've found unique about this is that when that happens, when that administrator, if it's me or someone else, says, hey, it's time to go. I think this is it. And it creates a hole in a schedule or causes timelines to get missed. I think what I have found is that all the people around who want to be there are willing to step up mm -hmm. in a huge way. Yeah. Because they're so glad that person's gone. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. And I have found that to be true. Yeah, absolutely. While we're talking about administrators, I know your time is valuable and we're about to run out of it here. So if you could give just one piece of advice to somebody getting into the industry, what would that be? Well, we've brought it up a couple times, but get out if you're not willing to do it for free. All right, that's just, it's just that simple. It really is because you're, these are lives. Yeah. These are people. They get hurt when administrators mismanage because they're not loving the job for the right reasons. They create collateral damage yeah. to their staff, to the residents, to the families. And this collateral damage isn't always evident. And the best administrators know that is exactly what happens when they don't love their job and they don't love what they do. And in the simplest of terms, if you don't love it, Go leave do it. what you love. Yeah. And if that means leaving the industry, then leave. If you love it and you would do it for nothing, then please stay. Mm. We need you. We want you. Mm. We, you're an important part of what makes Arizona long-term care so great. That's great advice. What's the future for Heritage Lane? Do you see expansion? It certainly seems like there's room for growth. Is that on your agenda at all? It's always on my mind. And money has nothing to do with it. There's I have to be honest. There's a huge need for it. It's just, there's such a need. And I get asked to grow. I get asked to spend. To, I, it's neat. Based on my own experience and volume of phone calls I get mm. needed in every state. <laughs> but I want to be vulnerable with you. I haven't found the right people to help me do that. I don't consider myself an expert in private equity or venture capitalism or financing. I'm going to, I'm a, I believe I'm a talented operator, but I don't, I'm, I don't have a degree in finance and, and I'm not going to be your, you know, your expert in acquisition. Mm. and merger and growth. So the people that I have found myself in front of, I've been a little bit turned off by because it's it just it seems like there's really a drive to to capitalize off of it and in long-term care, if that's your motivation, just don't even get in. Get out. You know, cuz no one in long-term care really appreciates that. You know, I think if 
my relationship of trust has developed with the MCOs because they know me for what I am. Mm -hmm. And they know me for the outcomes of the people that I'm caring for, which are their members. If I do find anyone that has the money to help us grow this product, I want that person to feel that same passion and understand that long-term care is not a dentist office. That's a good way of putting it. It was in, in doing this podcast, I've come to realize something that should have been obvious to me, but long-term care, these are people's homes. You know, it's not just going to the doctor. This is where they live, it's their home. And so you wanna provide an environment that not only treats the needs that they have, but makes them feel at home. And that that takes a real special combination of services and all and amenities and good smells and all everything that you would want in your own home. You know, that's a, it's not a very easy puzzle to put together, at least from the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. It's probably even harder to put together when you're on the inside looking in, I guess. I hope that I didn't come across the wrong way too, that I, you know, am, am, you know, somehow casting, you know, a a negative light on people that, you know, want to grow to the masses. I, I'm, I like, I, they are very much needed Mm. and I don't, I really don't believe in my heart. That's what they're all in it for. You know, I Mm. just, Heritage Lane is just so unique. Mm Mm-hmm that and because i am all medicaid yeah you, it's you are unique i just before you got here i told my associate that you're coming in and i explained what you do and he's like oh my goodness you're in mesa he's like i'm always he does conservatorships he's like i'm mm-hmm. always looking for places like that and i never know where to go mm-hmm. so all you do now so yeah let's get him out there and <laughs> check it out yeah i have respect for those who have sought out careers and in growth and expansion, whether that's through franchise methods or private equity and sharing and proposition that way. I think that's all a need. I just, for me personally in Heritage Lane and knowing what we do and what we need, it would just really take the right investor. It Mm. would take the right person Mm. to do that. And outside of that, the company's extremely healthy. Congratulations. You know, both financially and in operationally it's really really healthy i'm super lucky yeah i feel really lucky to be a part of it yeah you're definitely fortunate i don't know if it's all luck you've definitely put in the time and clearly have the skill so i wouldn't call it all luck but you know luck plays a part in everything you know i'm fortunate as well this is a I had a guest the other day that called it a people-centered industry. We've called it a service industry, but whatever we want to call it, you're giving of yourself, you know, day in and day out. That's at its at its core, at least for you, it's about helping people, giving to people. Can't really do that if you don't take care of yourself first, right? It's hard to give away what you don't have, as people like to say. So what do you do to take care of yourself, to keep yourself optimized, to keep yourself as your best version of yourself so that you can then help those that rely upon you? Well, in any pitch deck, I think a component of a pitch deck should require the health of the CEO. Because it's so critical, you have to know Anyone has to know that CEO is doing what he should do to create proper balance in life. 
Mm -hmm. You can't just be all things to one thing. Right. And not focus on your marriage or not focus on your kids or long-term care and administration has a tendency to ravage and destroy familial relationships because it requires so much of us yeah, and so much of our time. Wives become, or spouses or partners or whoever, become sort of desensitized to the use of the phone that occurs with an administrator in his life when they're sitting on the beach and he's answering his phone and his text <laughs> messages, you know, instead of being out with the kids looking for sand dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it does certainly require an awareness on the part of the administrator that that their job is very consuming mm-hmm. and they have to intentionally create that balance. Yeah. And if they don't, then you know, they'll end up like me. <laughs> Where sometimes my kids say, like, hey dad, you're just you always work. You know, or hey dad, you just like you're always so busy. And the last few years I've put a lot more into that because I recognize that. But you know, early on I didn't understand. I didn't do the right thing. And yeah. I created, you know, damage mm-hmm. because of that and I'm can't go back and fix that, but I can certainly change my behavior today. Yeah which is what I'm trying to do. But, you know, for me personally, I think I'm a, I always wake up at four o'clock in the morning and, you know, make myself a cup of coffee and sit there and get a lot of things done that I really probably can't do at the building Mm -hmm. because I really want to be available to my employees and they know I don't do their job. And I tell them I'm not doing your job. Just want you guys to know that. <laughs> my job is for me not to be needed here. Yeah. Like that a really that is my speak at work is hey, my job here is to make sure you don't need me. But I know that they're going to have questions or I know that things are going to come up that they need help with. But quite frankly, I don't have catastrophic interruptions at my at work. I just don't. They're really good. They know how to do their job and they do it really well. But nevertheless, I just want to be available. So the early morning is a big deal to me, just getting things out of the way, like, for example, writing an unemployment response. (laughs) It's really hard to do during the day at work. Yeah. So I'll do those things early in the morning. And and then I like, I love working out. So I like to lift weights, you know, even at my age, it makes me feel good. And yeah. I like doing that and I do that a lot because I do stupid stuff on jet skis and so I really like to, I got to be in shape to be able to do that. Mm. And that's a piece that for me and my wife that we do together and I, and that's kind of my next thing to say is that I think that, you know, we who run these buildings have to make significant investments in our relationships, our marriages, our partnerships with our spouses because our jobs ask a lot of them. Again, not something that I was good at early on, but am now, is just recognizing that we're asking a lot of them to support us in these roles mm-hmm. because it's a change of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's not a job, it's a lifestyle. And whether you're getting a paycheck and you're in a, under an employment agreement or whether you're an owner, you're, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. And the spouses make significant sacrifices to support that. 
to maintain those healthy places in those relationships requires a lot of deposits and a lot of investments. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I've given up a lot of hobbies. And if I do subscribe to a hobby, it's with her. And that would be the advice that I give to my fellow colleagues out there that are struggling in this area is that your job is demanding you've changed your lifestyle or your family unit and if you take up hobbies that your wife would do with you that's great advice i need to take some of that advice myself i love the early morning too there's something gratifying about so i can text you at 4 a.m you can yeah <laughs> <laughs> i won't do that you can i actually i've messed with my phone so that between the hours of nine and seven texts won't even come in and it's not because i'm sleeping i just don't want to be bothered between those hours you can call me you know if it's important people can call it'll come in but those hours are the hours that you know i just don't want anybody calling me or texting me unless it's an emergency you know i like to get up i like to accomplish things and there's just something really gratifying about knowing that most of the city is asleep and I've already, you know, done X, Y, and Z. I've already done my workout. I've got some work done. I did my meditation. I, you know, whatever. Did nothing. But I was up, and I'm, and I've done a lot more than the rest of the city. Mm -hmm. There's something nice about that. I love it. Well, I thank you so much for your time. Is there anything that I should have asked that perhaps I didn't ask? I don't think so. All right. You're the professional, <laughs> I, I, but I do want to say that I have a. I, I have a lot of admiration for what you're doing because I know that you're not doing it for monetary gain. And of course I'm a skeptic to get in front of a microphone and, <laughs> you know, put my stuff out there cause I just don't do that. But well, I'm glad you did today. I really um, appreciate it. Yeah. You know, but I return the gratitude and appreciation for what you're doing for our industry. Thank you. And I think, you know, administrators, could benefit a lot from each other and we could help a lot each other if we spent more time with each other and, you know, didn't, you know, kind of just mingle in the clicks. Mm -hmm. But if we, you know, really sat down and got to know each other, we would probably realize that we have a lot more in common and, yeah, I think and you're right. could be vulnerable together and be willing to share those vulnerabilities and get on different levels. What you're doing is creating that and it's fostering that kind of a safe place. And I think that's awesome. Well, thank you for that feedback. You're yeah, welcome. I really appreciate it. Reed, it has been a delight. I yeah. can't wait to share this with the world. Cool. Thank you. You've been listening to the Well Beings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.